You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. This week, SpyCast is brought to you by two new sponsors, Bonwi and the new podcast Hackable from McAfee. You hear more about the new members of the SpyCast family a little later, but first, let's meet our guests. We're joined today by Mel Goodman, who's a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy here in Washington, D.C., an adjunct professor of international relations at Johns Hopkins University. His 42-year government career included tours of the Central Intelligence Agency, the Department of State, and the Department of Defense's National War College, where he is a professor of international security. His previous books on international security include National Insecurity, The Cost of American Militarism, Bush League Diplomacy, How the Neoconservatives Are Putting the World at Risk, The Wars of Edward Shevardnadze, The Phantom Defense, America's Pursuit of the Star Wars Illusion, The End of Superpower Conflict in the Third World, and Gorbachev's Retreat, The Third World. He has written numerous articles and op-eds that appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Baltimore Sun, Foreign Policy, Harper's Magazine, The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, and the Foreign Service Journal. He has lectured at college campuses all over the country, as well as the numerous chapters of the World Affairs Council, the Council on Foreign Relations, and various veteran organizations. His newest book is A Whistleblower at the CIA, The Path of Dissent, which is an insider's account of the politics of intelligence. Welcome, Mel. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you, Vince. Good to be with you. So you have one of the great opening sentences of a book. You kick off your introduction with, quote, this is the story of an unreasonable man at the Central Intelligence Agency, <laughs> which I knew instantly I was going to enjoy reading this. Um, but let's talk about your, your career at CIA because it didn't start out that way. You came into the agency, well, you started actually as a cryptographer to the Army uh, during an exceptionally interesting time, an eventful time in world history, talking about from 1956 to 1958. How were your early experiences as an Army crypto guy? How did that shape your future career? Well, when I look back on cryptography, I think cryptography, in a way, is a form of truth-telling, even though it is covert. Uh, you're breaking codes, you're introducing material into codes, and you're getting an idea of what truth is all about. So you see very sensitive uh, messages that you take to the commanding general of the particular unit I was in, which happened to be in Athens, Greece. 
And this was a time from 1956 to 1958. You had the, the Suez War, you had the Soviet intervention in Hungary, you had the dust-up uh, in Lebanon. So there were all sorts of international crises that Not were to taking mention place. Sputnik, too, right? Was, oh, yes, yeah, game and how, how the Greeks were overwhelmed yeah. by that, that news. Uh, so I think that was a, a, an introduction to a teenager. I was 18 years old when I arrived in Athens of the incredible world of international politics. And I think it's stayed with me ever since. Yeah, but you didn't go directly into CIA. You went to school and got an education, and then eventually was pulled into CIA a little bit later. I went to Hopkins uh, as an undergraduate. I went to Indiana University's Russian Institute as a graduate. Uh, I was getting restless with the academic field. I took the Foreign Service exam. Uh, The Foreign Service panel had no real interest in the dissertation I was doing, which happened to be on U.S. recognition of the Soviet Union in 1933. And that compared poorly to my interview at CIA, where there was tremendous interest in the dissertation and told me to take more time to get it done before I came on board. So I went with CIA instead of the Department of State, and did not regret it. And you, you were in the office of what was called current intelligence at the time, which people may not know what that is, but they may have heard of one of the products of the Office of Current Intelligence at the time, and that's the Presidential Daily Brief. How That had to have been an amazing experience as a junior analyst at CIA, adding stuff to something that got all the way up to the President of the United States. Yeah, the thing that overwhelmed me, again, as a very junior analyst arriving in 1966, was very few people put the president's daily brief together. And it was rather freewheeling. So if you were an analyst and saw an item that was worthy of being put before the president of the United States, uh, you wrote that item, you dealt with the editors, and in the next morning, that item was at the White House. It was being read by the National Security Advisor, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, the President of the United States. And when I think about it, in terms of the demands of the PDB and the limited audience of the PDB, clearly not enough resources were thrown into a situation that was really the, the most demanding challenge that any analyst had at the Central Intelligence Agency. I believe that has changed today. It's much more of a uh, cooperative uh, Endeavor well, now with a lot more DNI hands and everybody arrived. else. Yeah, it may not be as straightforward as it used to right. be, but it is certainly more carefully massaged. Well, let me ask you about this time period because this is you talk 1966. For those that know a little basic history, this is a couple years into the already ramped up Vietnam War, where the CIA was at odds with what the White House had been saying about the war itself. Now, it goes completely off the rails in 68 with Tet and everything else, but by 66 there was real consternation between the success or lack of success of the heavy bombing that was happening over Vietnam. How frustrating was it to, as, as, as an agency, as an analytical branch of the agency, to constantly be at odds with the White House? There was tremendous pressure from this, and it cost uh, at least one CIA director his job, and that was Richard Helms. Uh, I think Lyndon Johnson and then Richard Richard Nixon were getting fed up with the negative reports that were coming from the CIA uh, on Vietnam. For me, as an analyst, however, who was opposed to the war, who demonstrated against the war, who took time off to take part in rallies against the war, uh, I was involved in the teach-in movement at Indiana University. But the interesting thing was to come to the CIA and find the discussions of Vietnam far more intense, far more controversial, and far more factual than what I was accustomed to at a major university uh, in the Midwest. 
so I was extremely proud of the fact that the CIA was telling truth to power. We were talking about the limits uh, that I think American power was facing in Vietnam and, and essentially why it was a fool's errand. And this is what presidents got tired of hearing. Soon thereafter, you kind of got a, a bit of a baptism of fire when the uh, Six-Day War broke out in 1967. Um, you guys actually predicted it was coming. And we knew it was coming, and we knew it would be a short war, and the White House was very nervous about our assessments. Uh, we said it would be a war of no more than two weeks. Of course, it was a war that was one day less than one week. But the stunning thing was to send, and I was a part of the team that wrote the situation report in the operations center that went down to the White House, uh, telling them that the Israelis had attacked. We called it a preemptive uh, attack. Uh, that item came back to us from the National Security Advisor with some rather scatological remarks uh, from Walt Rostow. He wouldn't accept it, saying he had guarantees, assurances from the Israeli uh, ambassador in Washington that they would never preempt. Uh, we took the item to the director, Richard Helms. Richard Helms said, you're going to have to let him down, but let him down easily. If you have to make some editorial changes, go ahead and make them, but stick with your analysis. We had extremely good analysis uh, in terms of intercepts from the National Security Agency, uh, sensitive intelligence from the USS Liberty, which is another right. saga worth talking about, and of course, satellite photography. Well, I think that that's, was this your first hint? I guess Vietnam would have been, but is this your first, like, personal slap you in the face hint of the politicization of intelligence that was possible i mean this obviously even to this i mean it's been 40 plus years israel the relationship with israel and the united states you can look at everything from jonathan pollard to uh you know the 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 uh the iran deal you know talking about very recent uh, how israel's relationship with the united states has such a political undertone that even something as basic as who shot first uh, has such a political problem with it that, uh, you know, was this a really wake-up call for you? Well, this was clearly an awareness of the political intrusion in terms of domestic politics on international intelligence and international politics, uh, because this was a White House that didn't want to get at cross-purposes with Israel. Uh, President Johnson was overwhelmed by the demands of Vietnam. It essentially cost him uh, the presidency when he decided not to uh, run again. He didn't want a quarrel uh, with Israel. And I think the White House was inclined in the initial stages to believe what the Israelis were saying about the USS Liberty, that it was a mistake. If that was an accident, that was the best planned accident that I ever witnessed right. in my 24 years at the CIA. Yeah, it wasn't like a high-level bombing mission that, you know, looks this like a was, ship. We're not sure what it is. It was this a was a ship that looked that. like no other ship and no other Navy. I mean, this was a, a naval ship that was seconded to the National Security Agency. It had the latest state-of-the-art technological gear on it. There was no ship in the Arab Navy that could be confused with the USS Liberty. Uh, the Israelis conducted reconnaissance for several hours. The bombing run lasted nearly uh, several hours. You even had Israeli patrol boats firing at rescue uh, efforts. 34 sailors were killed, 171 uh, were injured, and the Israelis claimed it was a mistake, that they thought it was an Egyptian ship. That is just nonsense. Well, the Israelis had some pretty somewhat sophisticated ELINT equipment at that time, too. They should have seen that ship glowing in the dark with the kind of equipment that was on it. Well, I think they knew exactly what the ship was and what it was all about because they warned the Pentagon to get that ship out of the Mediterranean, that it was too close to the battle zone. And we were reading the intelligence that came from that ship. And, and essentially, what we were reading were the Israeli war primes day by day, what day one would be, what day two, day three. 
and maybe the Israelis feared that this is intelligence that would get in the hands of uh, Arab intelligence agencies. I don't know exactly what their justification was for taking such a high risk. Right. Uh, and this was three days after the fact they lied to us about how the war started. Uh, there were no Egyptian war plans at this point. Uh, I think Egyptian President Nasser was playing a very risky game of building up political tensions. I'm convinced when he demanded that the UN troops leave the Sinai, the last thing he wanted was the UN to actually adhere to the demand. Right. <laughs> and then it was like, oh, what do, what do we do now? Right. Uh, but clearly Israelis uh, attacked first and they were uh, successful in wiping out about 200 Egyptian aircraft because they were parked wingtip to wingtip on Egyptian airfields, a clear indication that Nasser was not preparing for war. Right. Let me skip ahead a couple years to SALT because I, I'm, I'm, my foundation, my, my field is nuclear intelligence. Uh, arms control is certainly a key component to this. Uh, SALT is, can maybe be seen if we ignore the couple things that come after it, like SALT II, which collapses before it's ratified. But SALT is one of the ways that intelligence can be used to arousing success. I mean, I think this is CIA at its finest as assessing the capabilities of other countries when it comes to their uh, their power, their their intentions, and, and the verification, or lack of a better word, the monitoring of the Soviet Union that the CIA could provide is really what allows SALT to happen in the first place. I would argue, and I argued in an earlier book, The Failure of Intelligence, that you could not have arms control you could not have Senate uh, ratification of an arms control treaty without the intelligence community led by the CIA guaranteeing that they could monitor that uh, treaty. And that's what you had in the case of the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. One thing about the word verification is interesting because CIA Director Richard Helms, who was probably the craftiest political director that the CIA ever had, this was a man who totally understood Washington. And a lot of CIA directors had no clue right. Uh, to what Washington was all about. That was the weakness of Stansfield Turner, who was one of my favorite CIA directors, but he was naive about Washington politics. But when, when we went up to Richard Helms to tell him we were going to take part in the verification panel, he said, I don't like that word, verification. Only policymakers can verify a treaty. We can monitor the treaty. I want it called the monitoring committee. When we went back to the White House, it, we found out it was Henry Kissinger's word that it would be the verification uh, committee and Richard Helms was not going to win a, a political battle with Henry Kissinger. That was for sure. <laughs> yeah, no matter no matter how good Helms was at Washington, yeah. he was not going to out no, Washington. No one was that good. Kissinger. We'll have more with Mel in a moment. But have you ever wondered what a hacker might be able to see while you're on a public network? How much of your life is vulnerable to this kind of attack? It's easy to get freaked out by what we see on TV every day, but we can't just unplug and hope the bad guys go away. Wouldn't it be helpful if there were knowledgeable people who were willing to tell us what is and isn't possible? Well, the new podcast, Hackable, from McAfee, is out to show you. Jeff Siskind and his team of cybersecurity experts conduct in-depth experiments to uncover the truth about cyber attacks. This new podcast explores just how easy it is for cyber criminals or perhaps nefarious foreign government types to gain access to your digital life through something as simple as public Wi-Fi, for instance. Look. I know the SpyCast audience is not your normal podcast audience. It's safe to say that many of you know a whole lot about this subject. So I was pretty skeptical at first that this made any sense for us to work with these guys. But what's cool about this podcast is that it does a pretty great job working the space between being accessible to novices with little information in the field and still providing solid information for those more 
let's say, well-versed in the subject. This is information that comes straight from McAfee's experts, empowering people with specific things they can do to make their digital lives more secure. So, how worried should we be about the threat of public cyber attack? Listen to Hackable, now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. I, I found in your book an interesting, interesting analysis about Afghanistan. I'm sorry, I'm speaking over myself here. You're really one of the first analysts uh, that I've talked to um, who kind of really look at this from a perspective uh, different than the kind of conventional wisdom that the, uh, the CIA covert action in Afghanistan was a rousing success. Now, even ignoring for a second the... Uh, the results down the road. I know that's a big result. The idea of you know empowering Islamic fundamentalists and kind of some of the people that we're fighting there today are ones that we helped during the 1980s. But some of the foundational arguments of covert action in Afghanistan, the idea that the Soviets were trying to fight their way into the Middle East or to the Indian Ocean, you're you're really not only were you the first analysts to suggest that force would be used by the Soviets in Afghanistan. But your broader analysis flew directly in the face of what the White House had been arguing, what used to be called the Carter Doctrine. Well, the Carter Doctrine was, of course, written by the late Zbigniew Brzezinski. Uh, he was convinced that the Soviets were moving to the sea. It was the old philosophy from the uh, turn of the century about Russian foreign policy. Uh, and I think he was entirely wrong about what Soviet motivations were. The Soviets went into Afghanistan because they didn't want that war crossing the border into Muslim communities in Central Asia. And in March 1979, I think that's when I wrote the first piece uh, anticipating that the Soviets would go into Afghanistan with force. But the idea that we were successful in Afghanistan, I, I really took issue with because what we did was create a far greater enemy than Soviet power could ever represent, which was the, the radical extremist Islamic fundamentalist Mujahideen. And we're still dealing with that today. The idea that we're in our 16th or 17th year of that war in Afghanistan and a president and a secretary of defense are still trying to figure out ways in terms of how many forces sh we should have in right. Afghanistan is just totally mindless to me. How much credence do you give to the argument that the money and resources that the Soviets were forced to expend in Afghanistan because of American covert aid was what would eventually bankrupt them in the end. No, I've, I've never bought that. Uh, I think the Soviets were bankrupted for two reasons. One, an economy that did not work on the international level. They had no relevance whatsoever to international economics. And two, what no one has ever really uh, written about, but I had a conversation with George Kennan before he died, and he introduced me to the idea of political cynicism, that the Soviet Union had reached a point where no one in the Soviet Union, particularly outside of Moscow, believed what their leaders were saying. It was a totally cynical political community. And from those ideas, uh, my argument has been that the Soviet Union was a house of cards and it collapsed like a house of cards because it had no real political legitimacy or credibility whatsoever. Let's talk about the Soviets, especially in the 1980s, because I think that's a time when you know, all this comes to pass. Talk specifically about the war scare of 1983, because I think that there's been a couple new books that have come out recently because some information about Operation Rion and about Able Archer 83 have been recently declassified. Um, there were a lot that believed 
particularly within the intelligence community and even now to today in the foreign policy community that this whole they were never really frightened of this this is a war scare that never truly exists it was made up in the minds of the anti-war people you have a very different perspective and it's from being at cia at the time and looking at some of these documents that now we know from declassification exists but at the time you had a pretty good insight into what was going on there well we had very good documentation we had very good clandestine sources we had a defector Oleg Granevsky uh, who had defected to the British and when the British were done with him they allowed him to come to the United States and we could debrief him and I was part of that debriefing team and I was convinced from that and from the clandestine evidence that the war scare was genuine uh, that the Soviets genuinely believed that the United States might be planning on uh, a first attack against the Soviet Union. And when you go back to Soviet journals, and remember, again, the CIA had access to clandestine and classified uh, Soviet military journals, they believed that exercises such as Abel Archer could easily be a disguise or a decoy uh, behind which they would plan, with, the United States would plan a first uh, attack. So the war scare was real. And what was interesting to me about the war scare, it was probably the only time uh, analysts, several of us who believed the war scare was real, got into an argument with the CIA director, Bill Casey, who was very anti-Soviet, very anti-Russian. And he stuck with the analysts who believed in the war scare and did not accept the opinion of his deputy director for intelligence, Robert Gates, who was uh, convinced that the Soviets uh, were faking this uh, totally. So he bought our argument. He took it to the president. He took it to Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan, I think, was overwhelmed by the idea that the Soviets genuinely believed mm -hmm. that we would attack first. He was shocked by that uh, evidence. And you can see in his his policies moving forward and going into 1985 and through that he really softens his stance. On I think, it, I think it was the turning point. Yeah. Uh, because if you look at the first term of Ronald Reagan, and no one has ever written a good book on this, uh, the first term, very anti-Russian, very anti-Soviet, anti-arms control, anti-dialogue, anti-symmetry. The second term was totally different. Now, a lot of that I give credit to Secretary of State George Shultz. Mm -hmm. Uh, and also Mike Deaver, one of his aides, and actually Nancy Reagan had a role in this in reminding her husband about his legacy. Uh, I think the President of the United States is the only person in the country who has to worry about historical legacy. Uh, but whatever the reason is, Reagan did a complete flip-flop from the first term to the second term, and he became the most active American president in terms of arms control and arms control negotiations with the Soviet Union. Well, Reykjavik, the summit where they talked about getting rid of all nuclear weapons. I talked don't about think it people realize yeah. how close they came. Yeah. We scared the hell out of the Europeans when they found out <laughs> and the American that they, generals were too. <laughs> they were discussing zero level. Uh, but that was why they worried about Reagan being in a room with right. <laughs> Gorbachev without a brace of advisors around him. Well, I, I, that, I, th I found that fascinating in the book is that Casey, who we'll talk about a little bit later, but we can hint the fact that he was a full ideologue that completely believed in the evil nature of the Soviets being swayed by your argument that, look, these guys are terrified right now that we're going to start World War III. And just the, the ability of you as analysts and, and relatively small group of analysts to convince him just, again, I read it and I'm like, wow, I, I did not know that. Well, I was totally shocked. Uh, because this was after a year or two of debates with Casey over international terrorism, over the attempt to assassinate the, pole, the Pope and who was responsible for that. Uh, we must have made a damn good argument for Casey to buy into that because it didn't suit his ideology about uh, who the Soviets were 
and whether or not they could be trusted and whether we could believe anything that came out of the Kremlin. Well, you found yourself throughout that time period kind of banging your heads against the wall about your argument about the Soviet system itself. And you write in the book that you had a real difficulty convincing people that the Soviet Union wasn't doing all that well, that they were not necessarily the kind of threat that a lot of Americans perceived them to be during the 1980s. There were three lines of analysis that uh, Casey was not going to accept. Uh, one came from my office and my writing, which was the Soviets were trying to cut back on their involvement in the third world because they could no longer afford it. Uh, two, that their economy was in very bad shape and they were facing very serious uh, choices. Uh, that didn't suit uh, the conventional wisdom of the time that was trying to create the Soviet Union as 10 feet tall. And then three, the line, uh, which clearly was uh, validated by subsequent history, is that the Soviets were actually interested in serious arms control negotiations and genuine detente with the United States. And of course, when Gorbachev uh, came in, all of that was, was quite clear. So by 1985, we knew this uh, for a fact. But you had too many people in the administration and around Bill Casey, people like Robert Gates, uh, who weren't going to allow this kind of intelligence to get out of the building. So in 1986, uh, I went to the National War College to teach, and in 1990, I resigned from the CIA. And that, that was a turning point for me. Well, you could even see that in the beginning of the Bush, one, Bush 41 administration, um, there was a hesitancy by many to continue to embrace the kind of you know, thawing of the relationship between that had happened between Reagan and Gorbachev. I mean, Bush 41 was far more suspicious of the intentions of the Soviets than Reagan was before him. Yeah, I don't think people understood how conservative George H.W. Bush was and how conservative his national security advisor, Brent Scowcroft, General Scowcroft, was on these issues. And just as it took a George Shultz to convince Reagan to deal with the Soviets, it took another Secretary of State by the name of James Baker to convince Bush that, you know, this is an opportunity, a strategic opportunity, and you need to take advantage of this. And over a period of a year, uh, I think Baker did wear down the opposition this, the same way Schultz had to wear down Secretary of Defense Weinberger and CIA Director uh, Casey. Uh, Baker had to do the same thing in the Bush administration. To me, Schultz and Baker are the unsung heroes of the period of detente and uh, the period of the Soviet collapse uh, that allowed us uh, I think, not to take advantage of the Soviet weakness. Well, the, the Cold War ending cold, really, is, you know, the, the right, two that you instead of on. ending hot. Right, because uh, it certainly could have. I mean, 1989, I think, is it's understood by people who live through it, but not by many people who, a lot of our listeners who are, you know, in their 20s and 30s right now and don't remember that time of being, everyone kind of holding their breaths when Poland started to kind of have their, and then the reaction to that could have gone bad in many ways, if Gorbachev wasn't in power in the Soviet Union, and then if smarter people weren't uh, thinking, you know, rationally here in the United States, Gorbachev and his foreign minister Edward Shevardnadze, yeah. and that's why my wife and I did the book on uh, Edward Shevardnadze because to me he was another unsung hero who never really got the credit he deserved for allowing the Cold War to end uh, the way that it did with the reunified Germany in NATO. You know, no one expected to see things like this in their lifetime. Right. The idea of the Berlin Wall coming down, the Warsaw Pact dissolving, and then the Soviet Union dissolving uh, without confrontation. Right. Well, that's without, the key, I think. Yeah. In all the no war games expected, I played yeah. in the 1970s and 80s, we talked about some of these things, but only in an environment of war. 
uh, you know, the same way the Russian Revolution took advantage of World War I to allow the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. That's the way we talked about the end of the Soviet Union, not in a, in a peaceful way. That wasn't a consideration. Let me ask you, let me take a step out, look a little bit more broadly at intelligence and ask you about the differences between operations and analysis, because this may seem like, well, operations guys go get collect information, analysts analyze it. But I think you talk in the book about a much deeper kind of buried, deeper seated difference in kind of not just typology, not just, you know, extroverts versus introverts, but also about their willingness to kind of I don't want to use the word blindly support, but much more likely to support the politicians or the administration and the policies that are put forth by the political leadership in Washington. Well, there's a clear break between the operational culture and operational mentality and the analytical culture and the analytic uh, mentality. And I hate to generalize and make it too simplistic, but the operational culture tends to be right of center and the analytical culture tends to be left of center. But the thing that needs to be pointed out is the, the collection of intelligence by the CIA and the other intelligence organizations, particularly the National Security Agency and the National Reconnaissance Office, our mm-hmm. satellite photography, is outstanding. And when you look at intelligence failures in this country, and there have been significant intelligence failures, it has never been to a lack of collection. And I would even say that with regard to 9-11. The collection was good enough to prevent 9-11. The failures have been analytical failures a lack of rigor, a lack of imagination, a lack of looking for alternative explanations of uh, various uh, events. So there are these differences. Uh, but the analytical community is strictly a, it's, it's a different, more academic-minded community. The operational mentality is one of activism, very close to policymakers. And the flaw of the CIA, to me, uh, that I don't know if it can be repaired, is that the CIA likes to think of itself as not a policy agency. Mm-hmm. Covert action is policy. Covert action comes from the White House, and the CIA carries out that particular covert action, carries out that policy. And too often, clandestine collection is oriented towards supporting covert action and supporting operational d- ideas that come from the policy community. So you can never really separate the CIA from uh, policy. And that's why it makes it very difficult for intelligence analysts to tell truth to power because they have to stand up against uh, a very serious mindset that is not only within the CIA and the clandestine organization, but within the national security process itself. For decades, the analysts and the operations guys were literally and physically separated from one another in different cafeterias, they were in different sides of the building. That didn't tend to work all that well. There's still full-fledged politicization of intelligence, as we talked about going back to the Vietnam era and even before. Now, that's changed to a bit where analysts and operations people are being put together in fusion centers, and you have analysts that are being forward deployed to war areas where things are less, they're more nebulous, they're less clearly defined. There's That line of demarcation no longer exists as vividly as it did during the Cold War. Which is better, or is, is neither of them better? Is there an alternate solution that you would prescribe to try to make the analyst operations relationship work more in concert? Well, I think there needs to be some lines of communication between the analysts and the uh, operator, the uh, operational types. And when I joined the CIA in 1966, I didn't even know who my clandestine counterparts were in the CIA. Uh, This was a very secretive, covert mentality. 
They didn't share information about sources, about methods with analysts. Uh, today you have a fusion center and the previous CIA director John Brennan was responsible for creating those fusion centers. I'm, I'm opposed to them. I think analysts have to be compartmented. I think they need some kind of bureaucratic fence to allow them to do their own analysis without being compromised by operational people whose job it is is to manipulate the, uh, the work of, of their adversaries, mm -hmm. whether they're adversaries abroad or adversaries within the building in terms of intelligence uh, analysts. So I don't think the fusion centers uh, work. Uh, I don't think Brennan should have been allowed to create these fusion centers without the Senate and House Intelligence Committees providing some oversight, and they didn't say a word as these were uh, created. And when I think of the intelligence fusion centers that we have on, uh, on terrorism, on counterintelligence, uh, I find the intelligence analysis that comes out of there is incredibly superficial. So uh, I have a bias against fusion centers. So is there a happy medium? I mean, I'm not asking you to make policy prescriptions on a drop of a hat, but it obviously wasn't working all that well when the analysts were completely segregated from the operational side. And now it's the opposite, where they're fully intermixed with the operational side. Should there be some kind of... There is an argument to be made, and I think that people make the argument, especially in pro promoting the fusion centers, that it's good that the operations people can put themselves in the shoes of the analysts and kind of understand where their collection is going and how it's being used and vice versa. It's important that analysts are kind of put in the shoes of the operations guys because it does give them better perspective on sources of information and where it's coming from and how difficult it was to get. Is Should there be... A something in between. Again, I'm, I'm putting you in the shoes of, of a policymaker, and maybe it's unfair to do that and put you on the spot, but I'm wondering if you have any ideas or any prescriptions for making this work. Well, what I would like to see is total independence of the intelligence analyst. Uh, you could have liaison, internal liaison, between uh, clandestine operatives, say, in the European area and their counterparts in the analytical area. If you can have uh, logistics and communication between uh, various intelligence agencies, say the United States and, and the British MI6 or the United States and Israeli Mossad, uh, you could have it internally with, within the building, within the op operatives and within the intelligence agencies. But the idea of fusing them, I think, is going to give the upper hand to the operational culture because they're more effective politically than intelligence analysts. Uh, their training is different, their background is different, their personalities uh, are different. And I think there's been too much deference to the operational mentality. Let me talk about politicization in, in your particular uh, biography, because your decision to leave the CIA coincided with the appointment of a specific director, which we'll talk about the directors in a second. But I want to talk about two of the... Um, Two of the events or two of the analytical case studies, for lack of a better term, that really soured you on the agency. And one of them, you, you've already mentioned both, but one is the attempt in the, in the 1980s to link the Soviet Union to international terrorism. Um, in hindsight, it seems crazy because you know it's somewhat similar to the attempt to link Saddam Hussein to al-Qaeda. It's just, if you know anything about Islam, you know that's ridiculous. If you know anything about the Soviets, 
you know that they're more worried about the countries, now countries, but former republics that end in Stan mm -hmm. that surround their, you know, on their southern border than they were about anything else. So how did this come up and, and what was the pushback against it? And how effective was that? Well, I think it came up because you had two people appointed by President Reagan who strongly believed that the uh, Soviets were playing the field of international terrorism like uh, a Wurlitzer organ. Uh, Haig was convinced of that because he was uh, targeted in an assassination attempt while he was assigned to NATO and was convinced, he was wrong, but he was convinced that the Soviets were involved in that assassination attempt. And Bill Casey had people uh, on the outside, journalists such as uh, Claire Sterling, uh, who were convinced the Soviets were manipulating the field of international terrorism. We had excellent clandestine sources uh, in this area. We had extremely good penetration of the East European intelligence services, uh, very good clandestine collection in that area, and quite good intelligence collection in the Middle East that we inherited from the British when the British got out of the Middle East in the 1960s and basically turned their assets over to the CIA in the United States. Uh, so we had good reason to believe that not only were the Soviets not involved in international terrorism, but they told groups like the PLO, the Palestinian uh, Liberation Organization, and other uh, groups not to engage in international terrorism, that it was counterproductive. Uh, but again, Casey wanted to uh, convince the President of the United States that the Soviets were involved in this kind of activity. So the first work that was done was heavily politicized by his intelligence filter, who was Robert Gates, who was the deputy director for intelligence during the, uh, this period. And the work that was produced was extremely fatuous, politicized uh, work that uh, Casey's successor, Judge William Webster, uh, would not accept at all. He knew immediately, and it was briefed uh, immediately, about the uh, politicization of this work and that it had to be ignored. We'll get back to Mel momentarily, but first let me tell you a little about Bonwi.com. That's B-O-N-W-I.com. Bonwi.com is a website that specializes in hotel and car reservations. They combine the best and most interesting aspects of price search and rewards into a single site. What's interesting about this site is that Bonwi.com was formed by a group of travel professionals who have an aggregate 100 years of travel industry experience. The experience includes the birth of online travel where their founder was part of one of the very first online travel sites going back to the dawn of online travel, the 1990s. This experience is what has helped them to rise above the rest. Not only do they back their low rates with a 110% price guarantee, but Bonwee's unique infrastructure gives them access to special rates from hotels that their proprietary algorithms then pair up with extraordinary rewards offers. When you book through Bonwee.com, you can get up to 30% back in rewards points. Other travel sites only give you 2% to 10% at best. Reward points can be used for airline tickets, hotel stays, and gift cards. These points have no restrictions, no blackouts, and no processing fees. Completely free. Imagine booking four to five hotel nights and getting enough points just from that to get a free airline ticket, additional free nights, or even a $100 Amazon gift card. New members even get 1,500 reward points just for signing up, which is free, by the way. Learn more by visiting Bonwi.com. Again, that's B-O-N-W-I.com to start saving money today on hotels and getting up to 30% back in rewards. Well, another thing that pops up during this time is the, uh, the, the conspiracy theory. That I, I don't even say for lack of a better word because that's what it is, a conspiracy theory that somehow the Soviets were involved in the attempt 
uh, on the life of Pope John Paul II, who, of course, was uh, a Polish-born pope. Uh, and this is a time when the Solidarity Movement is going gone underground uh, in, in, in Poland in the early 1980s. And people wanted to say that the attempt on the life of the pope was a shot across the bow to kind of any kind of movements throughout Eastern Europe to try to fight against the Soviet dominance. Uh, this almost seems, and I think you mentioned in the book, but it, to me self-explanatory, that this was another attempt by Casey and others to get Ronald Reagan to stop thinking of the Soviets as a possible partner in disarmament and a detente. Uh, but this is right kind of when Gorbachev comes to power and it's trying to cool things off. And all of a sudden, other segments within the American intelligence community and foreign policy community are saying, no, they tried to kill the Pope. Don't deal with them. Yeah, well, it's clear that the papal plot was something that uh, Casey always wanted to write about. And when he finally got a report, it was a terrible report from a a Bulgarian source. It was third hand. Uh, But the one thing about Casey that was unique as a director is he liked to see operational reporting before it was actually circulated. And this was a report that the director of operations wasn't even going to put out uh, because it was a third-hand report and had no uh, corroboration whatsoever. But it did talk about Soviet involvement with the Bulgarians through military intelligence, the GRU, in terms of involvement with the papal plot. And Casey said, this is it. This is the smoking gun. Uh, This is what I want written up to, to make the case for Soviet involvement. And the order went down from Casey to his deputy director for intelligence, Uh, Robert Gates, who sent the order to my boss in the Soviet area, Doug uh, McCacken. I had been relieved of my position by Gates by then, but I found the first draft of this report uh, on someone's desk. Uh, One thing you learn as an intelligence officer, you learn how to read upside down. So when I was uh, in, in front of this desk and could read upside down this report, when this particular analyst uh, who was working on it in secret, which is not the way intelligence is usually produced in the CIA. I grabbed a copy, Xeroxed it, uh, and then made my case to uh, my boss, McCacken, and, and took it to Gates himself, saying, this is a fraud. This is totally politicized uh, intelligence. And as a result, I left in 1986 to go to the National War College. While you were at CIA, though, you worked with directors uh, going all the way back to Helms in the 1960s, and while you didn't work under him, you certainly knew directors going all the way up through Robert Gates, who was director under George Bush uh, 41. I want to talk about a couple of these. We already hinted at Helms and other things, but I found interesting um, that Helms essentially was fired uh, not only because of the Vietnam stuff that we've talked about also, uh, and I'm not making any any kind of comparisons to today, although you can make them on your own if you want to. Uh, he really was fired because he refused to help with the Watergate cover-up because, you know, Nixon asked, uh, because E. Howard Hunt and others or had direct ties to CIA, uh, and Nixon wanted this to go away. And then Helms, who had some issues, uh, some more moral and ethical issues we could point to, like all these directors, uh, refused, and that was kind of the last straw for Nixon. Definitely. Uh, What Nixon wanted to do was to have the CIA go to the FBI to knock off the investigation. And the parallels to today, I think, are going to become more and more interesting as time goes on. The problem was Helms had a deputy, a military general named Vernon Walters, who appeared to give a signal to the White House that the CIA could actually do this. Uh, They would support such an effort. And Helms was furious 
when he learned about this. And he made it clear to the White House that there was no role there for the CIA. And I don't even know if there were moral or ethical concerns. The one thing about Helms is he knew how to protect the integrity of the CIA. He was a really a consummate bureaucrat. Uh, I have a lot of respect for Richard Helms. I don't support everything that he did, but that wonderful book um, by Thomas Powers, The Man Who Kept the Secrets, is still the best biography of any CIA director I've ever read because it explains the role of the director in terms of politics in Washington, how an intelligence director operates in a larger political uh, community. And I, I agree, that's why Helms was told you're going to be the ambassador to Iran. And there's a great story I don't think I put in the book. When he arrived in Iran, um, he was uh, kidded by the Soviet uh, ambassador who was in Tehran about coming there as the CIA director. Uh, and, and Helms said, uh, it just shows how, what the president thinks of me that I, I'm still here in a very important capital. <laughs> uh, so he defended his position and was effective as an ambassador in, in Tehran. Well, I, I, what's interesting to me is the uh, this is somebody who lived modestly, kind of bought suits off the shelf, worked only from his government pay, uh, very different than other directors, perhaps that you know have used it to uh, either influence later on making a lot of money or came to the job already pretty wealthy to begin with. Um, he was the first person director you served under. Did he set the standard for you, your perception of what director should be, um, or was he just, you know, one stepping stone towards the next director? That well, came he. After? I learned certain things from him. I learned about truth to power. Uh, that was the Six Day War experience. Uh, that was the Vietnam experience. Uh, so clearly, these were very two important learning considerations. But remember that in 1971-72. Uh, he had to go before a court of law because he had lied about the CIA role in Chile. So I, I learned then about the problems of what covert action can do to the reputation and to the image of the, uh, of the CIA. And that's why I had tremendous respect for not his immediate successor, but a former colleague of his, William Colby, right. who became the CIA director. Uh, and I think his, his view of saving the integrity of the CIA was turning over very sensitive materials to Senate intelligence investigations uh, to show there was a CIA role in political assassination. The there was a CIA role, yeah. CIA role in uh, regime change. And the covert mentality, the clandestine mentality of the CIA turned against William Colby uh, for this. There were people who thought that Colby was a, a Soviet mole. There's an interesting dichotomy there because Colby really ran the Phoenix program during Vietnam, which was as covert action heavy-handedness as you possibly can. And for those that don't know, it's essentially an assassination mission that go kill Viet Cong or North Vietnamese leadership. I got to know Colby when I went to the National War College because I used to bring him over as a lecturer to the National War College, so I got to talk to him. And I, I don't have real certainty about this. But I'm convinced that Colby had tremendous guilt about his role with Operation uh, Phoenix. He was uh, a very active, believing Catholic. He went to church uh, regularly. I think he saw the, the moral and ethical issues involved with Phoenix. And to some extent, I think he was laundering his own reputation when he cooperated with the, the, the Senate and ignored the protests of Henry Kissinger, who was furious about the material that Colby was sending to the Hill. But when Colby found out that reporters such as Seymour Hersh, who's done a fantastic 
fantastic job as an investigative reporter, knew more about what was happening in the CIA than he did, he realized he had to look more closely. Well, and what's fantastic, you know, in an ironic sense, was that Colby was appointed by Nixon because Nixon assumed he could be easily controlled. And he was somebody that would just be kind of, uh, yes, sir, uh, you know, with orders from the White House. And that, that, to me, was pretty yes. wonderful be, be, irony. Be careful there. what you ask yeah, for. Yeah, be careful what you wish for. Um, let's talk about Casey a little bit because we talked already about him being an ideologue. But what, what's interesting about him and what kind of sets him apart from all the other directors was that Reagan elevated his position to that of a cabinet-level position, which no CIA director has enjoyed other than that. I mean, that, that's taking it from being kind of sort of political to putting it knee-deep in the middle of politics. Because, I mean, cabinet positions are political positions. The CIA director was never intended to be a member of the cabinet. That's a, it's a policy position and a political uh, position. Uh, Casey was much too involved in policy and politics. It was a, it was a huge mistake, but it was just one of uh, many mistakes that Reagan made in foreign policy. I mean, we, we haven't gotten to Iran-Contra yeah. uh, as yet, and it was something that Casey should not have wanted. But remember, Casey didn't want to be the CIA director. Casey wanted to be the Secretary of State. Uh, but I think Nancy Reagan was the one who told her husband, look, he, he doesn't look like a Secretary of State, he doesn't talk like a Secretary of well, State, talk and he doesn't important. dress like a Secretary of State. <laughs> so he became the CIA director, and given his OSS background, um, to a lot of people, they thought it made sense. It, it made no sense whatsoever. It's hard to be a diplomat if people don't understand what you're saying, which <laughs> exactly. is problematic. Well, they, the, the line was when he uh, testified for confirmation that he would be the first director who wouldn't need a scramble or telephone because you never knew what he was talking about anyway. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, Casey, um, perhaps, I, I'm not going to put the causality in, your, in the words into your mouth, but Casey's echo, his, like you talked about, his deputy director of intelligence, his, his number two in many respects, was a man that you were actually very close friends with when you first joined the agency, and that's Robert Gates. Uh, but it's really, it's his ninth, Gates' 1991 confirmation hearing that kind of finally put you over the edge and, and made you decide that you had to go public with your concerns about the politicization of intelligence. So let's spend a little bit of time on, on Bob Gates, because... Uh, Talk about, I mean, your kids knew his kids, the, you know, the best ice cream in the world, all, all this. You had picnics together and you spent a lot of time together. And then at some point, all this fell apart. I knew Bob. Um, well, I met him his first day in the building, took him to lunch the first day in the building. And I came back and told my colleagues, uh, we're going to be working for him one day. Uh, we became good friends at that time, but he was probably the most ambitious person and hardest working person uh, I had ever met. And the only thing I was wrong about was we ended up working for him much sooner than I thought. Uh, that's how fast it all happened. The divide, though, was over integrity. And I used that word with Bob, and it, uh, he reacted uh, quite angrily about the word, uh, the accusation of a lack of integrity. But it was a question of politicization. He had decided to give Casey what Casey wanted in terms of intelligence, and that was his role as he saw it as deputy director for intelligence. So there was so much phony intelligence on Central America, on Afghanistan, on all aspects of Soviet uh, policy. Like the Pope. The Pope would <laughs> in, be a classic international uh, terrorism, yeah. example of that. Uh, so eventually, uh, Gates moved me out of my position. I was running the uh, the division that dealt with Soviet foreign policy, particularly Soviet policy in the Third World. 
uh, and I became a senior analyst, but I decided that I was fighting these battles to no real end or real uh, effect as far as I was concerned, and that it was time uh, to go. But what people don't realize, in 1987, he was nominated as a CIA director to replace Bill Casey, who had died from a brain tumor. they couldn't get his name out of the committee. In fact, it was the chairman of the committee, David Boren, the same chairman who was in place in 1991 when he was confirmed, who had to call Bob at home and tell him that evening, you know, the committee just doesn't believe you and your denials about involvement and knowledge of Iran-Contra. But in 1991, four years later, Boren turned around and guaranteed to the White House he could get this man uh, confirmed. It led to extremely controversial hearing. It started out as Gates's uh, nomination uh, to lose. Uh, I think my testimony was very effective, so it became his nomination uh, to win. There were more votes against Gates uh, in the committee and in the entire Senate than in all the foreign and all the uh, CIA directors combined since the creation of the CIA in 1947. So that is when I think the term politicization gained some real currency. It was, this is the, for the real first time that people were having an open conversation in public in a very uh, well-watched event about the politicization of intelligence. It I didn't mean, start out that way because it started out in closed hearings to deal with classified materials. And I was about 30 minutes into my testimony when uh, Senator Sam Nunn, an extremely influential uh, senator who I think wanted to be president and probably should have been president and could have been president, uh, broke in and said, this is much too sensitive to discuss in closed session, we have to go to open session. It was one of the most paradoxical statements I had ever heard, but that was my goal, was to get this out in the open so a larger public could understand what disputes are like within the intelligence community. I think it's very important for the public to understand differences within the intelligence community and differences between the intelligence community and the policy community. Uh, So it, it turned into very controversial hearings. You write in the book that the politicization of the Gates hearing was really kind of the beginning of the end for the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, for the integrity that it was supposed to have when it was created after Church and Pike. Is this mainly because, as you write in the book also, that people who would directly gain from his confirmation were allowed to testify on his behalf? Or was there a broader, larger issue at play here? I think there was a larger issue in that the president himself uh, through his liaison people, went to the committee to make it clear that no Republican was going to vote against uh, Robert Gates. Uh, Chairman David Boren, who was a Democrat, because the Democrats were still in control in 1991, had guaranteed to the White House, to Bowden Gray, that he could get Gates confirmed, a guarantee he never should have given, and it made his colleagues uh, uh, on the Senate Intelligence Committee, particularly uh, Senator Bill Bradley from New Jersey, uh, very uh, angry about this guarantee because Bradley was convinced that Gates was responsible for the politicization of intelligence. He knew this from people like me, but he also knew it from people like uh, Doug McCacken, uh, who had testified uh, on behalf of Bob Gates in 1991. So these were very controversial times, but it did, to me, end the bipartisanship of that committee that had been bipartisan since its creation in the wake of the Church Committee hearings. Do you see HIPSI and SSCI today as being in any way capable of conducting adequate oversight over the intelligence community? No, I certainly do not. And a very good example of that in the current, uh, you know, contemporary context 
is the torture and abuse report that was done when Senator Dianne Feinstein uh, was chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. The minority chairman, or the minority leader, Richard Burr, the current uh, chairman of the committee, would not allow any Republican staffer to work on that committee. No Republican senator voted for the committee. And now Burr, as chairman of the committee, has called back all of the authoritative reports, 6,000 pages that document the terrible torture and abuse that was part of the global war on terror in terms of CIA uh, involvement. And this, pro this uh, report will never see the light of day. Uh, which is very unfortunate. Well, those two committees were intended to be one element of oversight uh, over the intelligence community. Another one was the inspector general system, which you have very strong words about in a book. Not that it shouldn't exist, but that the fact that the last two administrations have really, if not put the, all the nails in the coffin, have put a whole lot of them and really weakened the ability of the IG at CIA to do their job. Yeah, and here, unfortunately, I blame President Barack Obama, Harvard-trained lawyer, uh, professor of constitutional law who didn't understand the role of the inspector general or was convinced that the inspector general uh, was creating political problems uh, for the White House. He's the one who de-emphasized the role of this inspector general. Uh, Hillary Clinton, when she was secretary of state that entire first term, had no inspector general at the State Department. Most of the years that Barama was in, uh, president, there was not a statutory inspector general uh, at work in the Central Intelligence Agency. The IG at the Pentagon was extremely uh, weak. So throughout the national secu security community, and this, is include, uh, this uh, continues until today, uh, the Inspector General as an important aspect of internal oversight does not exist. What about the press? What about journalism? Do you, do you see them as being too cozy with the agencies? Because there is that argument back and forth about you don't want to get too close as a journalist, but at the same time, you need access, and sometimes access is only granted when you have relationships that may look like they're too close from the outside. I'm just—that's the argument. I'm just saying what. Where you, you, in the book, you come down pretty strongly against modern journalism and their ability to keep the agencies in check. Well, there was a wonderful book done um, several years ago by Greg Herkin on the Georgetown set that dealt about the close ties between CIA directors and the press. CIA directors such as Alan Dulles and the Alsop brothers, Stuart and Joseph Alsop, or uh, Joseph Kraft was very close to uh, Richard Helms. Uh, and this was an incestuous relationship. So the CIA could really get its point of view into the press uh, very easily until you've got good investigative journalists, uh, particularly like people like Cy Hirsch, Seymour Hirsch was extremely effective in this regard. Today you, you do have apologists for the CIA. Uh, the Washington Post uh, leading foreign news columnist David Ignatius has been an apologist for the CIA for the last 20, 25 uh, years. But the Post also employs Greg Miller, who is a... Greg Miller does an excellent job. James Risen at the New York Times and Charlie Savage at the New York Times do an excellent job. But if you look at the press generally uh, in the United States, there are only two or three papers that even cover uh, the intelligence community or cover the Central Intelligence Agency. So overall, the public isn't getting the information that it needs. And my own experience during the confirmation hearings when I began to leak material, I will confess, I did leak material because the White House was attacking me unfairly, uh, I began to leak to a reporter from the Washington Post, Benjamin Weiser, and a reporter from the New York Times, Elaine Cialino. 
And midway through the confirmation hearings, she ignored material that I was giving to give a very favorable account of Bob Gates and how he was doing in the hearings. I had lunch with her after the vote had been taken, and I said, Elaine, uh, I was aware of this change in tone. Tell me what happened. He says, well, she, he, she said to me, it was pretty obvious after three or four days of testimony that he was going to get confirmed. He would become a CIA director and a very important source. You would go back to teaching at the National War College. I'd probably never call you again. Well, this said it all in terms of what's wrong uh, with journalism, what's wrong with the mainstream media, that they're, they're hesitant to tell truth to power. Reporters know a hell of a lot in many cases that they don't print because they don't want to compromise relationship with a source. And this is damaging to our democracy. Well, and it's hard to know, for the American people to know how to react when they're told by many. I mean, you you reference specifically Jim Clapper in the book, but there are a lot of people out there who love, and as a historian, it makes me cringe every time somebody says that this is the most dangerous time they've ever had in their lifetime. And I'm, I was, you know, I was seven years old in 1983. That gives you the idea about how, how old I am. But I remember that scaring the living crap out of my parents, you know, watching the day after on TV, which is still the most watched TV movie of all time. <laughs> people were terrified that everyone was going to die. And saying now that ISIS somehow is as big a threat as 45,000 nuclear warheads pointed at us from the Soviet Union seems ridiculous. But... How are the American people going to understand what real threats are and how afraid they should be with real threats if there aren't people out there giving them the kind of information that they need? And that's why I do want to segue this idea of getting the information out. You just talked about why you decided to leak, and you use that word, although your book says the word whistleblower. And I want to ask you, do you distinguish between the two, between leakers and whistleblowers? Oh, I certainly do. A whistleblower to me is someone who's trying to correct uh, a problem. Uh, I look at a whistleblower as a truth teller, and I know that will be very uh, subjective uh, for most people, but I think it's, it's a public servant who sees a problem that needs some exposure or needs some correction. And in our own times, when you look to me at the testimony that um, Sally Yates gave on May the 8th or James Comey gave on June the 8th, a month later, uh, they were acting in the role of whistleblowers. They were trying to correct a serious problem, an aspect of misgovernment, of, of mismanagement of government or misconduct uh, in government. Leaking is far different in that there's no, generally no real purpose sometimes in terms of a document that's leaked. Some people do it just for self-importance. We have this, uh, the recent uh, example of uh, Winter Reality, uh, who leaked a document that to me served no real purpose uh, whatsoever. I'm not sure what her motivation was. And of course, she was then uh, mishandled by the journals she leaked a document to, and she was arrested within an hour after it was yeah. uh, published, which should be a, sh- uh, a shot across the bow to anyone who's thinking about leaking, let alone might, whistleblowing. That be a world record for how quickly <laughs> someone is yes. arrested yeah. for leak. I, I want to ask you about the, some of the double standards that you talk about in the book between those at high levels and those at lower levels. Let's let's talk CIA. Compare David Petraeus's experiences with Jeffrey Sterling's experiences. I mean, you can even see this when talking about the Publication Review Board and how easy it is for uh, people. George Tennant, I think he's the one. He he gave his book to a publisher before he even sent it through the PRB. It's essentially a little bit of a slap in the wrist. And then those that are lower level mid management 
get prison terms for some of the same stuff. Well, actually, it was Leon Panetta who oh, gave Panetta. Set his sorry, book George. to his uh, publisher sorry. before it was uh, reviewed. And Panetta used a ghostwriter from the Los Angeles Times, who my guess is did not have security clearances to help Leon Panetta write this book. My recent book, uh, Whistleblower at the CIA, uh, took 11 months to review. Now that takes slow reading to uh, a new level as far as I'm concerned, because the book, it didn't have classified material in it. They suggested a couple changes that uh, I didn't fight. Usually I, I write a reclama when they suggest changes, because rarely is there a genuine sensitive statement. Uh, I'm very well aware of sources and methods, and I would not oppose it or expose a genuine secret of the CIA, but the book is embarrassing to the CIA because it talks about uh, blunders within the CIA, and that there is that double standard. Look at the David Petraeus uh, sentence. He lied to the FBI. That usually brings you a jail term uh, in the United States. He got a slap on the wrist, even though he exposed the names of uh, uh, clandestine agents. Think of John Kiriakou, who got a three-year jail sentence uh, for giving a name to a journalist of a clandestine agent, even though that name was never printed uh, in any paper. So there was a clear double standard at work there. And then I think back to people like John Deutsch, a CIA director who took home and put on his home computer some of the most sensitive black operations that the CIA was running, and on that home computer, someone, I assume it was John, but maybe someone else, was accessing pornographic sites. So I'd have to think a lot of that material was in right. a position to be uh, exposed. And we got pardoned for doing it, too, He right? was pardoned yeah. by yeah. Bill Clinton. Yeah. So there are a couple of statements you make in the book that, I mean, books aren't, you talked about this, took 11 months to get cleared, so books take a little bit of time to write. This is a relatively substantial book. I mean, it's almost 400 pages long. So let's, let's say you started writing this a year or so ago, or a little longer than that. Certain statements I want to clarify, perhaps. Um, one is WikiLeaks, because you do tie in Julian Assange with the Edward Snowdens and Thomas Drakes of the world. And no matter what you think of Snowden, certainly no matter what you think of Drake, I think a lot of our listeners, and I'm being a surrogate for them right now, uh, are seeing WikiLeaks in a very different light that we saw them in when Chelsea Manning leaked to them, right? At first, they were this organization that was determined to bring things to light. Chelsea Manning is as still a sympathetic figure, um, leaked to them, and many people saw them as heroes. Now, not as much. I, I, do you have a thoughts on WikiLeaks and whether or not they play a positive role in policies today? I thought with the origin of WikiLeaks and the role of Julian Assange, uh, I would have defended Assange and WikiLeaks, that they were playing a positive role. They were trying to bring uh, truth to people about large-scale government, about authoritarian policies and authoritarian policymakers. Somewhere along the line, uh, Assange fell off the tracks. And I think he became as anti-Hillary Clinton as President Vladimir Putin uh, of Russia. And that's why I'm inclined to think that there was some clandestine relationship between uh, Russian intelligence uh, agencies and Julian Assange. The way Assange was fed material uh, that clearly was compromising Hillary Clinton's uh, candidacy. And I don't know what happened to Assange, uh, but I no longer have any uh, real respect for the work that he's doing. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, given uh, comments I've heard and commentary I've read about his personality and his, uh, his own authoritarian tendencies, uh, that he's gone way out of his lane and has other nihilistic uh, tendencies that had nothing to do 
with trying to shed greater light on uh, big government and big policy. Right. And finally, let me ask you about Vladimir Putin, because uh, the, the majority of your book, I'm sure, was written prior to the last seven months. Um, you do mention several times in the book that the Russian threat has been overstated, and I can understand that from a uh, existential threat perspective, right? They're not rolling their tanks across the Folda Gap anytime mm-hmm. soon. But have you reassessed that at all uh, based on you know current news, whether or not so Russian intelligence interference in the election, Russian intelligence, disinformation and active measures against the American public and making us think certain things, using WikiLeaks, as you just said, to try to... Uh, Stop someone from getting elected in the United States. I mean, you know, we do this. We did this back in Italy in 48, and we've done this time throughout our history of interfering in other people's foreign policy or domestic policy, but it usually makes us look bad. Do you think this makes Putin and Russia a broader threat than they may have been perceived a year or so ago? Well, I just don't think of Putin as a threat to the United States. Okay. Uh, I don't think of his involvement in Syria, in eastern Ukraine, or Crimea as, as threatening. Uh, I think they point more to signs of weaknesses in, in Putin's uh, presidency than they do signs of, of real strength or accumulation of power. I think one of the ironies of today is that Putin would probably like to create a more solid relationship uh, with the United States. Uh, and I would be very critical of Barack Obama for taking the demonization of Putin much too far mm-hmm. and cutting off any uh, real dialogue, any institutionalized uh, arrangement for dealing uh, with the Russians, and that we have to get back to some uh, system of dialogue with, the, with Moscow because there are so many things that we agree on of mutual interests, of arms control, disarmament, proliferation, counterterrorism. Uh, but now when you... Every un- uh, rock you pull up these days, there's a Russian angle underneath of it. So the possibility of doing this, I think, is uh, probably zero. Which is strange because in the 2012 election, the Democrats and the Obama campaign ridiculed Mitt Romney for saying Russia was the number one foreign policy yeah, threat. Well, do, do you want your Cold War back or, right. or, or some, yes. something to that effect? And then all of a sudden, uh, Obama starts demonizing Putin. And I don't always agree with Henry Kissinger, but when he said demonization is not a strategic policy. I certainly agree with him on that score. We'd like to thank our two new members of the SpyCast family, Bonwee and the Hackable Podcast from McAfee. You can learn more by visiting Bonwee.com, that's B-O-N-W-I.com, or by checking out Hackable through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your favorite podcast. Well, the book is called A Whistleblower at the CIA, The Path of Descent. It is a fascinating insider account of the politics of intelligence i don't care what side of the political spectrum you come down this book is a must read uh you don't hear me say that all that often but i think that uh talk about a the insider word is is incredibly important here this is somebody like we talked about that watched the cia from very high levels from the 60s all the way up into the mid to late 80s uh, and beyond. So, Mel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. We truly appreciate it. Vince, thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org, or tweet us at INTLSpyCast, that's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. 
The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.